And welcome back to STEM Fatale, your women in science history podcast. We're we're back. I'm Emily, I'm Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm Dr. Emma Dilemma. And you can call me uh, uh the, I always forget nothing rhymes with my name except Dilemma, which is the whole point. I wanted to have like a turkey, like a Thanksgiving Day nickname. Mm. I guess you can just call me Turkey <laughs> because I've eaten a lot of it. So I basically am one now. Wow. That's that's lovely. Just for today. Just for today. I, I can't call you yeah. Turkey after today. No. You can call me Chocolate Bourbon Pecan Pie. Whoa. I know it's a mouthful. You can call me Chalky B. Chalky B. <laughs> this is Turkey and Chalky B coming at you. <laughs> oh, boy. Happy belated tea day. Yeah, happy belated Thanksgiving, everyone. I hope y'all had a nice, safe holiday and ate a lot and, or not, you know, <laughs> ordered in maybe whatever works for you. Yeah, enjoyed uh, a little holiday with friends or family in whatever weird shape it may have taken this year. Right. Yep. Andresa, mm-hmm. I just I just made pies. <laughs> so we just ate pies. But you know, there's nothing wrong with that. <sighs> pies are the best. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. I know. It's my, been my breakfast every day. It's a healthy yeah. way to start the day. Really gets you yeah, I mean- going. Honestly, like, if you can eat a Danish for breakfast, why can't you eat pie for why breakfast? Why can't I eat something that has bourbon in it for breakfast? Yeah. Right. It's the same thing. Don't police me. Mm-hmm. Well, Emlyn, mm-hmm. um, this is episode 69. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Our Thanksgiving Day... <laughs> Uh, our Thanksgiving themed, also sexy themed episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ariana Grande and you and I are we're on the same wavelength <laughs> this week. Look, I was never quite on this wavelength, <laughs> but I did it to make you happy. <laughs> yeah, I told Emma like a couple weeks ago. I was like, our 69th episode's coming out. We got to do something sexy for it. I know, but you're in charge of it. So good luck. Have fun. Yeah. And I was like, huh, is there a way to do this without being totally offensive? Yeah. How do we, how do we thread this needle? Um, I'm interested to see how you do it. You know what? I think I did it. I love it. Okay. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so ready. And you know where sexiness starts, Emlyn? <laughs> this is I, I think I could answer this question so bad. Where does sexiness start uh, with the heart? Well, yeah, okay, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> what about your sex chromosomes? Ooh, yes, <laughs> C- chromosomes are very sexy. 
the X and the Y mm-hmm. of it all, mm-hmm. or the double X, or anything in between. Yes. Well, great. I'm glad you agree that's where <laughs> sex starts. <laughs> because today, I'm going to be telling you all about Nettie Stevens, who <gasps> discovered that chromosomes discovered sex determination by chromosomes yes okay we nettie nettie stevens has been on the list even though i didn't really know what she did i i just saw her on the list and i was like yes one day yeah i've like passed over her many times not for any particular reason just always trying to like get different types of people in Mm -hmm. so um you know, she's a kind of another American lady. Mm-hmm. We try to switch it up, try to get different perspectives, yeah. different fields. But yeah, she's kind of a classic and she's been on the list for a while. And she discovered sex determination by chromosomes or chromosomal sex determination. So for episode 69, I said <laughs> it's the perfect thing. <laughs> it's it's perfect. You really you threaded the needle. It's appropriate. Right. Thank but thematic. You. Thank you. I'm so I'm proud. <laughs> All right. So should we get started? Absolutely. Oh, um, before we start, I'm gonna do a little plug before before we get into all this oh. this sexiness. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are doing our holiday sticker merch sale, and thank you everybody for already, who's already bought. I just wanted to let people know that there's a couple of them. Like Eugenie Clark and Isabella Abbott, who we have like very limited amounts left. So if you were interested and we're holding off, there's like six of each of those left. So just letting everybody gotcha. know. You know, gotcha. it's a hot, hot merch. Yeah, get them, uh, <laughs> get them before they're gone, guys. And that's it. That's all I have to say. You can check them out on our website. We'll put put a link if you're interested. All right, let's get into the sexiness. <laughs> okay, so Nettie Maria Stevens was born in Cavendish, Vermont on July 7th, 1861. So we got us in the 1800s. Love gal. it. <laughs> Old school. This lady. was actually, she was born the same year as the start of the American Civil War. Oh. Um, but obviously, you know, living in the North, she kind of grew up on the winning side. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Um, and, excuse me, sorry. Um, and let's see, her extended family had lived in the Boston, New England area for multiple generations and was considered middle class. Her father worked as a carpenter and general handyman, and he would often move to places and do like road work for a while, you know, or just handiwork there. Mm -hmm. And she had three siblings. Her mother died when she was two years old, and her father remarried soon after, though I don't know much about that whole life, Mm -hmm. I guess. And when the Civil War ended in 1865, the North became relatively wealthier, and the family moved to Westford, Massachusetts, where there was a lot of new opportunities for her father to work and buy land there after the war. How long was... Okay. How long Four was the years. Civil War? Okay, did you say that she was born in 1831? 
1861. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, for a minute, thought that the war had gone on for 30 years, and for somehow I didn't know that, <laughs> and I doubted everything. Okay, four years. Yeah. That's what I, th- I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. Okay. Great. Um, okay. So, in Westford, Nettie attended public schools with her sisters until high school, when she was accepted into the Westford Academy, which um, was a unique school at that time because it was open to girls and to international students. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, she was lucky to live near an academy like that. Mm -hmm. At this school, she learned a few different languages along with, you know, common subjects like math, writing, art, geography, and music, and she excelled in all of her courses. So she's a bright... Young star. Good job, Nettie. <laughs> yeah. After graduating from high school, she was interested in teaching, partially because, you know, like we've talked about before, it's just sort of one of those, one of the only jobs available to women, um, especially if you had received an education. And so she went on to the West F- Westfield Normal School Teaching College in Massachusetts, where she excelled, she completed coursework in record amounts of time, she had the highest grades in every class she took, and she started studying more um, specific sciences, like biology and chemistry and physics and geology and etc. right? Nice. So she's getting into science and she's really good at school. Um, upon graduation, she went to teach at the Minots Corner School, which (laughs) was also in Westford, Massachusetts, where she grew up. Mm -hmm. And she was a great teacher, everyone said. She spent a lot of her time rewriting syllabi and observing and teaching other teachers how to teach. So she was like, while she was there, she helped improve the school a lot on a whole. Um, and she could have had a pretty lucrative teaching career. Lucrative? But, well, successful. Uh, yes, okay, okay. I mean, yeah. I think we probably also, I don't, I don't know how well we paid teachers back then, but. No, no, never lucrative. <laughs> never been lucrative. We should pay teachers a lot Yeah, more. we should pay teachers all of our money. Maybe Biden. Well, okay, this is such a tangent. I hope that we raise <laughs> pr- wages for teachers. That's all. We don't, yeah, we don't need to get into yeah, it. I hope too. everybody is for that. I hope so, too. And I think um, I think Nettie would have been for that, too. Yeah. And with Dr. Jill Biden in the house. <sighs> yeah. One can only we hope can, that only we hope. make some good improvements in education mm-hmm. at long last. Yeah. Okay. Well, Nettie, despite, you know, teaching being so lucrative, uh-huh. she, she had other things in sight for mm. herself. So in 1892, she left teaching and spent some time working as a librarian. Um, this was, a, you know, a couple lost years here. Her family had moved to a new town during this time. So it's possible she was just helping them like move and sell things for a year or two wasn't, you know, you didn't have big moving trucks then. So things were a lot harder <laughs> when it came to moving. Yeah. By 1896, though, 
When Nettie was now 35, something drew her to further her education. And so she left Massachusetts and enrolled as a special student at Stanford University. Oh. Which had only opened five years earlier. So Stanford was a very new school. And it let women in at that time? Yep. Since their opening from 1891, Stanford was co-educational and non-denominational. Frick yeah. Stanford? Yeah, though there were some weird things where they like capped the number of women Mm -hmm. because uh, Jane Stanford didn't want it to seem like an all-girls school Mm -hmm. (laughs) because so many women wanted to attend. You can't educate too many women. You could. Yeah. So. Only some. Even still. At least they let some in. Yeah. Well, t- I'll take the win where I can get it. <laughs> right. Which is more than other places. <laughs> anyway. So let's see. She moved to Palo Alto, California, Ooh. my hometown. Shout out, PA. <laughs> <laughs> and she decided to major in physiology at Stanford, where she was um, a special student, whatever that means. And her, I think she just was taking classes at first, not really like declared or mm-hmm. officially a student. Okay. It's hard to... I don't know what that meant yeah. at that time. In her second year, though, she received admission to advanced standing and began studying histology, which is the study of the microscopic structure of tissues and cells. And she studied um, under one of her biology professors, Dr. Frank McFarlane, mm-hmm where she would go with him to the Hopkins Marine Station in Pacific Grove. Oh, nice. And, yeah, let's see. And she, you know, would look at sea creatures under the microscope. And then finally, she graduated in 1899 with her bachelor's degree. I love that. And let's see. By this time, her sister and father had moved out to live with her in Mountain View, which is a neighboring town of Stanford. So she's got her family She's got her bachelor's degree. What's she going to do now, right? The world is her oyster. She decided to stay at Stanford to then pursue a master's degree in histology. And so for her thesis, uh, it was titled Studies on Ciliate Infusoria, which, let's see, I maybe, I hope that I didn't go into too much detail here, but she basically studied these things called ciliates, which are single-celled eukaryotes that have, like, these little hairs on them mm-hmm. called cilia um, that usually help them be mo- mobile or sense things in their surroundings. And they're often found in water, and they're often parasitic. So, for example, the ones that – the two species that Nettie described for her master's thesis were – found parasitizing the California sea cucumber, which is another weird organism mm-hmm. that looks just, it looks just like a gel sack, like a giant slug. Basically. Uh-huh. I love, and I love parasites. Yeah. I love parasites and I love sea cucumbers. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> she studied the, Let's see. So for her thesis, she described two species of cilia in great detail. She discussed their anatomy, physiology, ecology, behavior, 
And she was able to do this through microscopic study of the organisms, where sometimes she would just put them in a dish and watch them swim around Mm -hmm. and describe them that way. Other times she would fix them, like use a solution to make them stable on the slide, you know, and then stain them using different techniques so that she could view different parts of their anatomy Mm -hmm. under the microscope. And so she got really, really good at using these different techniques. And after her master's degree from Stanford, she decided to continue her studies even further and by pursuing a PhD at the Women's College of Bryn Mawr uh, in Pennsylvania. Nice. So at this point, let's see, she's 39 years old, maybe older, actually. Well, I think I mixed something up, but she's... (laughs) Getting up there, but age not is that just up a number. There. <laughs> I guess she's not that much older than I am now, but she's still just older than you would think of students now, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and there was one notable scientist who you may have heard of before, who also studied histology and cytology, and he was a professor at Bryn Mawr when Nettie first enrolled, and his name was Thomas Hunt Morgan. Have you heard of him? Or do you remember him? Not really. (laughs) See, this is where I feel better. I mean, I knew who he was, actually, Mm -hmm. from teaching intro bio for so long. Uh But this is where I'm sometimes like, see, we don't know who anyone is. It's not just... (laughs) I don't know women scientists. I don't know a lot of male scientists either. (laughs) Anyway. Well, tell me about him, I guess. Well, (laughs) it's a a long story, but he's part of the story from here on. Okay. So he was a professor at Bryn Mawr, who she began taking courses with. He also, of course, even though he was actually younger than her when she enrolled in her PhD and he was a professor. Oh, interesting. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. It's a weird dynamic. And he, he corresponded frequently with other notable histologists like Edmund Beecher Wilson, who will become another important character. Nettie was only actually at Bryn Mawr for a few months. She's still, she stayed in her PhD But she received a fellowship to study abroad in Italy and Germany after her first year. Nice. So she went to visit another scientist who was also fairly famous, if you are a cell biologist. His name is Theodore Boveri. And while she was there, he was researching the role of chromosomes in in heredity in sea urchins. Okay, so I'm going to give you some background on how what biologists knew and didn't know about chromosomes and inheritance. Excellent. Because this was a time of very rapid change and discovery in the field of genetics. So it's important to know like where these guys were and where like Nettie fits in. So let's see, just a general overview. A few years before Nettie was born in 1861, Charles Darwin wrote about natural selection, famed natural selection. Yeah. Uh, a few years after Nettie was born, Gregor Mendel proposed his laws of segregation mm. and independent assortment. So two big names in science, big theories that would later be shown to be 
true, you know, uh, coming out around the time she was born. Though both of them were sort of ignored or not totally believed, I guess, or, you know, whatever, until about 1900, mm-hmm. which is the year Nettie started her PhD. Okay. And... There was then kind of a resurgence of Gregor Mendel's ideas and some thoughts of how that would fit into natural selection. Though still not accepted fully. Mm -hmm. Okay. Biologists at the time did theorize that there was a molecule of inheritance, but they did not know where this molecule was in the cell or what it was made of, just that there was some kind of physical molecule the offspring inherited from their parents that resulted in kind of a transfer of information that would create similar phenotypes or traits between parents and offspring. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine because we know it's genes now, like DNA, but they didn't know that DNA is passed from parent to offspring. Mm-hmm. And that that's how we inherited traits from our parents. They just knew something was passed from parents to offspring. So although DNA had been isolated by this time and chromosomes could be viewed and described using microscopic techniques, scientists did not know that chromosomes contained information that cells used to make proteins. Yeah. Okay. They, like they didn't know, still didn't really know the role of DNA mm-hmm. in the cell. Yeah. It's like you've got Around, these weird X's. Right. But you're not yeah. sure what the like function somebody is. Had, yeah. Somebody had described meiosis and mitosis mm-hmm. at this time, but they still didn't know what those chromosomes role was in the cell. Okay. So around 1902... Um, Theodore Boveri, who Nettie was studying with in Germany, would go on to be co-credited with another scientist, Walter Sutton, who's a student of Edmund Beecher Wilson, in developing a robust theory of chromosomal inheritance. So they, both Boveri and Sutton, um, both independently found evidence that chromosomes are the molecules that contain information needed to produce phenotypes and are passed from parent to offspring. Gotcha. Thomas Hunt Morgan, her professor at Bryn Mawr, would actually later confirm this theory through experimental work in fruit flies, for which he would eventually win a Nobel Prize. Oh, la Yeah, so essentially she's like... In this hot spot of people discovering things about chromosomes. Like, she knows the guys who came up with this theory. She knows the guy who's going to later, like, show, find evidence for the theory, like, incontrovertible evidence. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, she's right in a hot spot for discovering new information about chromosomes and their role in inheritance. Okay. So, one thing they didn't know was how sex was determined. Um, and the term gene would not even be coined until 1909. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that word doesn't even exist. We'll just call it molecules of inheritance, okay. I guess, until 1909. <laughs> and then we'll switch. Okay. Yeah. So was that too confusing? No. Or how are you feeling? I feel okay. good. I feel cool. strong 
independent and knowledgeable. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so back to Nettie's life. So she didn't spend long in Europe with Bovary, but she probably learned a lot about chromosomes and sort of beginning ideas of his theory. Um, And let's see, she returned in 1902 using her research to finish up her PhD in 1903. And her dissertation was titled Further Studies on the Cilia Infusoria, Lichnophora, and Bovaria, which were the same genera of ciliates that she had researched for her master's. Mm. And so she kind of just did more of the same work that she had been doing for her master's, but she described, um, she compared and contrasted a lot of different species across these two genera from different locations around the world. So just a bigger, broader thesis this time. After finishing her dissertation, she sought out research-based fellowships because she knew at this point she liked doing research. She wanted to keep doing research, right? Mm -hmm. And even though most positions required teaching, she really just wanted to do research. But she was pretty financially spent at the time, too, because she'd used most of her savings from teaching earlier, her lucrative savings, yeah. <laughs> um, to pay for all the schooling for the last, like, 10 years or whatever. Well, I mean, it, m- it might have been lucrative. Or we actually had schooling be cheap <laughs> back in the day. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> so she applied for a research position assistant position at Carnegie Mellon, which is also in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Probably, I think it's close to Bryn Mawr. It's in Pittsburgh. Yeah, right. And she obtained many letters from other biologists like Thomas Hunt Morgan and Edmund B. Wilson, along with the letter from the president of Bryn Mawr, which I'm just going to read a sentence of it because it's really funny. Yeah. Uh, The president, Martha Carey Thomas, wrote that Miss Stevens is one of the few women I know who seems to me to possess original power of a high order. That's like a a strange (laughs) dig at women. I know. It's not like she possesses the most. From a woman. (laughs) The president of Bryn Mawr was a woman. Yeah, yeah. So it's like... (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, times times were weird, and yeah, everybody yeah. thought that women. No, it's I, I I mean it's it's a kind of a similar thing as we have now, where like you can listen to some people and they don't think a woman should be pre- like women think that a woman shouldn't be president, right? And yeah, you're like what? But exactly. But why? Yeah. Do you believe I know. that? It's. Just one of those things where it's like, she can't just be good. It's like, oh, well, other women are so bad, she stands out. Uh You know what I mean? Yeah, or like, like, most women aren't capable of this, but she's an exception. She's special, yeah. Right. Instead of being like... a special woman. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, she's not like the other women. Not like, you know, women are smart and she's exceptional. It's... Yeah. Other other women and she are shit. A higher but she's order. pretty good. <laughs> she possesses original power of a high order. That's so. What does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> it's like some Star Wars shit. <laughs> anyway, the force is with funny. her. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, 
But she didn't hear back from Carnegie Mellon for some time, which it's hard to say why not, because they, whatever, there's a whole timeline to this. I didn't go that into it. But anyway, T.H. Morgan, um, he actually sent multiple letters on her behalf trying to get this funding for her because he was interested in collaborating with her, but also just supporting her work. Mm -hmm. And she finally received confirmation that she did get the grant to become a research assistant in 1904. Nice. So, by the way, this grant, I think, was like (laughs) $1,000. It's like, wow, that's... And this was like a big deal, anyway. Well, $1,000 back in the day was probably, you know, like 20000 or something. Right, yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. So, for the next year or so, she continued her studies at Bryn Mawr through the Carnegie Mellon Grant, while also teaching a course, I think, um, at the same time. And, let's see, at one point, she spent the summer in Cold Spring Harbor Harbor and was invited to stay there longer as a researcher, but I'm not sure why she didn't. But anyway, she's meeting lots of people and continuing her research. Okay, and so here, Emlyn, is where we finally get sexy. Yeah! (laughs) Which is to say... Like sex cell, like we're gonna talk about sex cells. It's sex chromosomes. <laughs> sex cells. Sex cells. Yeah. Ooh, that should be the title. Sex cells. But with a C or with an with S? A, with a C. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Okay. Okay. So. By 1903, when she began her work, there is no widely accepted theory of sex determination. Though some, namely um, a man, Clarence McClung, had proposed that the presence of what they called a quote, uh, what they called, quote, accessory chromosomes in cells seemed to be correlated to sex determination. So he had observed that in some cells there was one more chromosome than other cells. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think looking at, when he was looking at sperm cells specifically, or comparing the cells of male to cells of female. Mm-hmm. So, right. So he had seen specifically that female individuals had an extra chromosome. Mm-hmm. However, there was... So he kind of came up with this idea that, hmm, maybe, like, sex determination is related to this difference in chromosomes between males and females. Okay. Okay. However, there is another popular collection of theories that centered on the idea that sex was determined by external factors like temperature. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not wrong. Just not I know. It's... Yeah, exactly. So we know now that temperature does influence sex determination in some organisms but not all Mm -hmm. but really like they thought um yeah sex in all organisms was determined by like your diet your temperature etc like something like that so that was just the other kind of category of theory so yeah nettie was nettie stevens was interested in this question as well as was thomas hunt morgan and edmund b wilson Mm -hmm all these histologists that she worked with. 
And Wilson was a member of the Carnegie Institution's advisory committee that had given her the grant to study this very subject. So there's a lot of argument as to who discovered that chromosomes can be uh, can play a role in sex determination. Wait, sorry, let me say it again. So there's some argument as to who discovered this phenomenon first, as both Nettie Stevens and Edmund Wilson published papers on the subject of chromosomes and sex determination at the same time. Mm -hmm. But, and I'll get into the nitty gritty of it a little bit, but in the end it settles out as follows. They both discovered it around the same time, independently of each other, while also acknowledging each other's findings. Yeah. So they were never, like, competing mm-hmm. over this. And they were both, I don't know, I'll come back to this at the end a little bit, but they were in, like, kind of constant communication about their studies and their results. But they also did their own work that showed the same thing at the same exact time. Um, we'll get into these studies a little bit. But it's just to say, like, sometimes they make, you know, all these big science stories make it seem like these people are, like, hate each other, competing, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, It was never really like that with them. That's really nice. As far as I can tell. That's nice to hear because I do think we can get so easily into this toxic mindset of, like, competition between different scientists for, like, the glory of the discovery. Where science really should be this collaborative process and having it independently discovered in two instances doesn't make either instance less significant right and actually and like bolsters the credibility of that finding so that we can more quickly like trust that that is the truth and expand upon it exactly and that's exactly what happened yeah okay so let's talk about these papers because they're pretty major Um, Wilson's first paper on sex determination came out in, uh, this is Edmund Wilson, came out in May 1905, just one month before Nettie Stevens' paper on the same subject, and before she had even submitted her paper to the Carnegie Committee. Mm -hmm. So any claims that he tried to publish this so he could get it out there before her, like, knowing what she had already is not quite true, Mm -hmm. just given the timeline of publication and when she submitted her paper, which was after he published. Gotcha. So, in his study, he investigated chromosomes of hemipterin insects, which Mm -hmm. are true bugs. Um, They're the the sucking bugs. know what true... Yeah, they're... Like stink bugs. I think... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sucking... bugs (laughs) bugs <laughs> this is sexy yeah <laughs> uh hemipterans yeah i think like stink bugs yeah yeah that's a good example i was trying to think of what people would know what hemipterans people would know and i forgot about stink bugs okay so his findings not only confirmed earlier work that in one sex there's sometimes an extra accessory chromosome but he found that sometimes in some species in the male sex 
there's another smaller chromosome. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to to describe this without just what because it, to me it's like I will describe it knowing what I know now. Yeah, but I'm trying to think of it and how they understood it. Even though he had essentially just discovered a Y chromosome in some of the insects that he was studying, he did not conclude that the difference in the two types of chromosomes alone determines sex. So instead, he said that sex may be determined by a combination of of environmental factors and chromosomal differences. Okay. So he thinks at this point, he's not sure still whether or not chromosomes alone are determining sex he thinks well maybe there's some combination of temperature and diet and this and that combined with these differences in chromosomes that's Mm -hmm. determining sex okay so nettie stevens on the other hand had a slightly more conclusive study which was submitted right after edmund's paper was published And then he actually saw her paper and was like, oh, we need to get this published right away. Mm -hmm. Because the Carnegie Institute had to approve the paper before it could be published in a journal. And her paper, in her paper, she too specifically investigated whether accessory chromosome others had described previously was in and of itself a sex determinant. And she looked at spermatogenesis, the formation of sperm cells in a a few different insects. Now, in one insect, not in all of them, but in one of them, the common mealworm beetle, she observed that egg cells always had 10 large chromosomes. Mm -hmm. However, sperm cells varied. Mm. Sometimes they had 10 large chromosomes, other times they had 9 large chromosomes and one small one. Okay. So, furthermore, female worms had 20 large chromosomes, while male worms had 19 large chromosomes and one small one. So, she's really observing that the differences in the sperm and chromosome counts in sperm are kind of directly related to differences in chromosome count in the sexes as adults. Mm -hmm. And so she proposed that sperm containing the small chromosome determine the male sex and sperm containing large, 10 large chromosomes determine the female sex. And she said that perhaps this was because of differences in the amount of chromatin. Mm -hmm. Because you would have, chromatin is what makes up chromosomes. You would have more of that if you had 10 large chromosomes versus nine large and one small, Mm -hmm. right? So this is, in and of itself, not that different from Edmund Wilson's findings, but in her paper, she stated more definitively that chromosomes inherited from the father were responsible for determining sex. Okay, so she's, he's saying, you know, chromosomes play some role, but the environment might also play a role in sex determination, and she's saying the male's... Like, whether or not they have this little one or a big chromosome yeah. is what's determining sex determination. Yeah, yeah. she's laying out that hypothesis mm-hmm. for what she, or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, something to be tested further um, experimentally. Yeah. But, yeah, she's basically proposing, yeah, exactly that. Okay. 
And after seeing this paper, which Edmund Wilson called admirable and again pushed the committee to publish, he actually added a preface to his earlier paper saying that because of her paper, like he cited it, he said because of that, he more firmly believed the chromosomes were sex-determining than he had initially stated in his paper. I love so that. So he kind of changed, like, the discussion section mm-hmm. of his paper, like, added a preface to that. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and she also, of course, acknowledged his work, yeah. too. So they're, like, working together, basically. You know, they're never, like, oh, no, I'm right, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Or I, I discovered it first, I get all the credit. Right. I don't want your paper to be published. Exactly, yeah. I want all the glory. Um, But even she was not 100% conclusive. And the reason for this is because they were studying insects, Mm -hmm. which you may or may not know this. I bet a bunch of our listeners don't know this, but a lot of animals do not have XY sex determination like humans do. Mm -hmm. Where, um, so in insects in particular, there's a lot of variation. So some insects do have an XY determination system where sex is determined by the presence or absence of a Y chromosome, which is smaller than the X. Um, So males are called the heterogametic sex because they have two different sex chromosomes. In other insects, however, there is no Y chromosome. Okay. And so in male or female sexes, Um, And sex is determined by the presence of an extra X chromosome. Gotcha. So this is often called an XO system. Mm -hmm. And that is what some of these, um, like Wilson and the other guy, McClung, they were studying insects that didn't have Y chromosomes. Like I think, and even uh, Nettie Stevens was also studying some insects that didn't have Y chromosomes. Okay. So sometimes they see like female individuals have, they always see this extra X in females, but they don't always see the Y in males. Gotcha. So that was sort of confusing. Mm-hmm. And then even still to be more confusing, other insects have a ZW sex determination system where males have two Z chromosomes and females are the heterogametic sex. Mm -hmm. So they have a Z and a W, two different types of chromosomes. And sex is determined by presence of the W. And then even to complicate things further, (laughs) there are some some insects like bees and ants that don't have sex chromosomes at all. And males develop from an unfertilized egg Mm -hmm. where... Females developed from a fertilized egg. Yes. So they were ultimately kind of lucky in that any of the organisms they decided to study were XY. Um, But they were also confused by the variation they were seeing Mm -hmm. in this. Sometimes there is a Y chromosome present. Sometimes there's not. Um, So the two of them continued to research this broadening their scope and just trying to investigate as many different insect species as possible. Nettie in particular focused on beetles where she found that in 50 species of beetle, there was an unpaired chromosome, which is the exo system. And in nine species of flies, she specifically found XY chromosomes. Okay. 
So it's like they're seeing all this variation, which to me would make it really hard to determine how these chromosomes specifically would be involved in sex determination. Um, and let's see. uh, Throughout all this, Thomas Hunt Morgan was following this work closely because he studied chromosomes. He was interested in chromosomes and their role in inheritance and and whether or not sex could be inherited or how sex was determined. He later said that their theory of chromosomal inheritance of sex was not widely accepted for a long time, and that these early studies still do not convince everyone, mm-hmm. mostly because they were not experimental. So that was always just like staining, looking at cells, staining, um, etc. So both Wilson and Stevens would propose other possible theories in their papers to explain their findings. So even they were not completely convinced. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's just like, I think it's just a classic example of how science really works. Mm -hmm. Like it's not always clean. It's often very confusing until there's a ton of evidence, you know, pointing in one direction, right? Yeah. And you Um, don't want to kind of have a narrow view Like, you don't want your pet theory and to have your data, you know, interpret it as supporting your pet theory and not actually being like, well, it could be these other things and we haven't quite. Yeah. Like, our our evidence isn't conclusive enough to rule out these other things. Right. Like, science should be Um, kind of one step at a time. Yeah. And it's like you find evidence, but it might not it doesn't always paint the whole picture, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, Nettie, when she investigated sex determination aphids, she couldn't find any evidence for accessory chrom- an accessory, like, extra X chromosome in female aphids. Aphids are a whole, um, a whole other right. ball game. Yeah, they're complicated because sometimes they're sexual, sometimes they're asexual. Mm-hmm. They're always a pain in my and, butt. However, and so this is just another example of how things can change with new evidence. In 1908, after reading a paper by Thomas Hunt Morgan on something called lagging chromosomes, where one chromosome pair divides later than others, hmm. she went back to her research and found that that's where the heterochromosomes, the X chromosome, the extra X chromosome was. It was a lagging chromosome hmm. in the aphids. So her earlier staining techniques weren't capturing it because she was like staining chromosomes at a stage where she wouldn't be able to visualize this extra chromosome. Gotcha. Which is hard. I don't know if that makes sense to people who have never stained chromosomes. But basically, she wasn't seeing the lagging chromosome, which if you, like, like uh, I don't know how to describe this. Like, if you take a slice of a cell at a point in time, her slices weren't, she, like, literally couldn't see this extra chromosome mm-hmm. because it hadn't, like, been formed yet, if that makes sense. So it was, like, loose chromatin and it's it hadn't like, con- condensed into a 
Yeah, like, basically. Okay, yeah. interesting. I didn't even, I didn't know about lagging chromosomes. Right. So, yeah, so this is just to say that it took a lot of time to get enough data that the chromosomal theory of inheritance, um, oh wait, that the chromosomal theory of sex determination um, would be accepted. Mm -hmm. And her studies up until her death a few years later would all find these um, accessory chromosomes and Y chromosomes and other insect species. So although Bryn Mawr was working hard to create a research professorship for her, and they were eventually successful in doing so, um, but she unfortunately became sick with breast cancer mm. by the time the position was ready, and she passed away from carcinoma in 1912 at the age of 50. Oh, that's sad. So, yeah, kind of like at the height of her research career, yeah, she got really sick, which is very sad. Yeah. And so she had published 38 papers during her 11 years as a researcher, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it's just to say, like, you know, imagine if she could have had a longer career. Mm -hmm. Like, I think she would have been probably a Nobel Prize win winner like some of these guys were later. Yeah. Um. So let's see. So people like Thomas Hunt Morgan and Edmund Beecher Wilson have ended up in a lot of textbooks. And so why hasn't Eddie Stevens? Um, until recently, it's it's just kind of confusing, but some of it is, is likely due to her early death. So mm -hmm. her and Wilson's theory was not fully accepted before she died, and she never got a chance to complete the necessary breeding experiments that would confirm that sex can be a genetically determined trait. And those that would be confirmed by breeding experiments completed around the same year of her death mm. um, by Thomas Hunt Morgan. Gotcha. Who showed that the gene for white eyes and fruit flies mapped to a sex chromosome specifically. Okay. Um, so she was respected somewhat oddly during her time. As we discussed before, she received support from her male colleagues mm -hmm. throughout her career. However, they would also refer to her as Miss Stevens, even after she had received her PhD, which is, you know, so it's not, yeah, I don't know if, how they totally viewed her, right? Mm -hmm. um, in 1910, she was listed as one of a thousand, quote, American men of science. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> which is like... Just call it American scientist. Yeah. Well, that's like, wasn't that Grace Hopper where she was like the yeah. first, you know, man of man of like computer or, science or some BS? Yeah. I don't remember what the exact thing was. And um, until recently, many people credited Edmund Wilson alone with the discovery of sex chromosomes and T.H. Morgan with the discovery of chromosomal inheritance. Mm -hmm. However, I think this is, if you look into the details, it's more of an example of how 
scientific discoveries are really never the work of just one person, but more a long drawn out process done by a ton of smart people whose work, you know, all builds off of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at this point, I think she's co-credited with, with Wilson and Morgan for, and like given, you know, due um, respect for her like role in pointing and figuring out that chromosomes um, can determine sex, but for a long time she was kind of ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, that's yeah. that's how it often goes, and I'm glad that we're you know eventually kind of going back and seeing the nuances and giving people credit where credit is due. Yeah. Yep. Well, that is awesome, man. They they picked a taxa that probably is easy to easier to work with, but has such a diversity of like sex chromosomes that that probably yeah. added to a lot of confusion because yeah, things wouldn't I necessarily honestly, match up between different species. Right, because you see, like sometimes there's an extra chromosome here or there, but you can't say, oh, every like female sex insect has this exact number of chromosomes even or like spiders they're not insects but they have like five to ten x chromosomes oh boy like yeah so it can be really there's so much variation Mm -hmm. in sex determination systems that of course it's going to be confusing because they're right and they're wrong anytime they say something. Like, they can say, in this insect, I believe this is causing sex, right? Yeah. But they're trying to make all these generalizations, not realizing you can't do that mm-hmm. with the sex determination. Um, but now we know there's some general rules and different organisms fit into these different rules, but... Yeah, they had no idea there was so much variation at that time. It's pretty, which would make it pretty hard. Yeah, indeed. Cool. That was awesome. Yeah, so that's I love it. So I'm like, I spaced out. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, I yeah, didn't. So that was Nettie Stevens. <laughs> that is great. I do think it's really interesting. I'm trying to think back at all the ladies, all the. A steminist that we've talked about and it does seem <laughs> the steminists either have a relatively short life and died early or live to like a hundred years old it seems like there's nothing yeah. in between they're they're oh they're either like in their 90s or like 50 or less yeah that's true i wonder if it's because there might have been less things like heart disease that like kill you when you're 60 Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah i mean like uh, some of them like marie curie it's it's like if you're working with things that are dangerous then you know like going into volcanoes or going into volcanoes oh the crafts the crafts (laughs) yeah but it seems like there's there's a it's a bimodal distribution of like mortality with the with the steminists it's weird it's definitely weird oh man well that was great no i Nettie has been on the list for a long time and uh was perfect for our our 69th episode (laughs) 
Yeah, was that? That was no, that was I perfect. Mean, I think I say the word sex a lot. Yeah, you say so. sex a lot, but keeping it it's PG pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I love I don't it. think children listen to this, so it's fine. God, no, I hope not. There's other better ways to get educated than this podcast mm-hmm, if you're mm-hmm. a child, I think. Yeah, I don't think long form non-interactive <laughs> podcast long form right history of science yeah no probably not all right work, 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 work. all right welcome back to this is what what am i saying this is the women who work <laughs> section where we give shout outs to badass ladies making history today All right, so today my shout-out goes to Dr. Sarah Weinstein, who's a Smithsonian Impala uh, postdoctoral fellow and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Utah, and her collaborators for their paper that came out recently in the Journal of Mammalogy on the secret social lives of African crested rats. Whoa. Yeah, do you know anything about African crested rats? Uh, I don't. Should I look them up? Do I need to know what they look like um, for this to really... They're pretty cute, yeah. I would look up, up African Crested Rat. Aw, they kind of look like a chipmunk with a porcupine. They're like... Okay, they superficially resemble a porcupine. Mm-hmm. Very cute. They're pretty large rodents with black and white markings, so they kind of have like a skunk vibe, but also they have these long... um hairs so they kind of also have like a porcupine vibe weird and they have long been known or suspected to be toxic oh interesting okay yeah so um they're in kind of central kenya um and regions around there but although they're pretty elusive so people rarely see them dogs that will uh bite these rodents inevitably get sick and die so like historically people know that these are toxic for some reason okay so in 2011 a team of mammalogists were able to capture one of these african crested rats and offered it a branch from the poison arrow tree which is what um people use to make poison darts in africa cool so it's like has very toxic compounds that give you that cause you to have like cardiac arrest um and so the team witnessed this rat chewing up parts of the poison arrow tree and then coating this mixture onto the specialized hairs that they have on their backs which they use for defense oh okay so they're not producing it themselves yes yeah so this made the crested rat the only known mammal to sequester plant toxins. The only one? The only one. Yeah. I think Whoa. Isn't like the there's another isn't the platypus like toxic? Or has a toxic spine, but it produces it has that. Ven- it's venomous. It's venomous. Yeah. Yeah, but it produces well, that so, yeah. venom. Um Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. It it breaks all the rules. You know? <laughs> I know the platypus is crazy. <laughs> But so is the African crested rat. They have like 20 X chromosomes. Oh, boy. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They need to calm themselves. 
Uh, so uh, Dr. Weinstein and the team wanted to follow up on this work to see if this finding kind of held up across the whole species. So they only had seen this in like one individual okay. before. Um, so they wanted to get like larger sample sizes, see if this held up across the species in different areas, and also see if there was an effect of this poison on the rat itself. Okay, okay. So um, Dr. Weinstein and the team used a combination of camera traps and live traps across central Kenya and were able to capture a total of 25 African crested rats, which, wow, you know, I work on snails. I have, you know, thousands of snails. But if you're working on an elusive mammal, that's like a very good sample size and took them a huge amount of work to get. Yeah, that's pretty... Especially something small. Mm-hmm. Well, they're they're like I don't think they're too small. They're like oh, kind of kind of hefty okay. for rats. Okay, okay. Um, like a squirrel. I think bigger. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think they're like I don't know. We'll look it up. They're but they're hefty boys. Yeah. Um. So since this species is so elusive, the paper is full of a lot of new information about these species, which I'm not going to kind of go over. So I suggest going and reading it yourself. It's like a fun a fun paper to read. Yeah. But some of the That's highlights so cool. that they found were, uh, first, they noticed that over a few nights, they would actually capture multiple crested rats in the same trap. Um, so oh. like maybe a male one night, and then they would go set the trap again, and then they would get a female the next night, or a juvenile. Okay. And previously, they had thought that these rats were solitary, Um, but their data suggested that they were clustered across the landscape, actually. Aww. Additionally, yeah, so they don't seem to be loners as much as we thought. Additionally, once they brought them back into the lab, um, and if they placed them in the same cage, they would spend all their time together, males would follow females around, and they'd occasionally mate. So this is also sexy. They mate. (laughs) That's it. <laughs> they mean okay. <laughs> um, so they seem to spend a lot of time together, more so than you you might expect if they're more solitary animals. And right, the juveniles right. would also interact with them. So there seems to be more. Um, they seem to be much more social than previously thought. Wow, that's really neat. Um, yeah, so that's really cool. That That's not even something that they were looking into. It just so happened that they kept finding these, like, kind of clustered groups of individuals that they think are all from, like, the same nest or that all live communally together. Yeah, I wonder where – do you think they live underground or do you know? They live in, like, riparian habitats, but I don't okay. know anything about, like, their – where they actually yeah, like spend would, their time, like if they live in caves or underground find. or whatnot. Yeah, right. Um, cool. Yeah. So additionally, they offered the poison arrowroot plant to all of the individuals they caught, and so ten out of the twenty-two individuals chewed up the poison arrow plant and anointed their specialized hairs in captivity. So that gave. Wow. Um, a, a much more robust finding that this is actually what's happening kind of across the species. Um, yeah. And these compounds last for a long time. So 
the fact that not all of them did it doesn't mean that they haven't in the past um, mm-hmm. because they they estimate that these uh, the poison that they put on these hairs can last for a couple months uh, at least. And so you wouldn't necessarily oh. expect all of them to re- re-anoint right, in captivity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And they also found that there was no discernible behavioral changes when the rats did um, chew up the poison arrowroot and anoint themselves, suggesting that there's probably not any strong effect of the poison on these animals so that they are resistant in some ways. Oh, yeah, I bet they that's like a bunch of animals are resistant to their own Mm -hmm. toxins, right? Like toxin producing animals often have to be resistant. Yeah. Or if they're going to use, you know, they're not producing that toxin, but they're going to use it, then they have to be not terribly susceptible. Right. Because if you chew it to keep yourself alive and you die, it's really not a helpful (laughs) anti-predator strategy. Yeah, pretty... Ah, that's funny. Uh, so yeah, so that's my shout out to Dr. Sarah Weinstein. Yeah, and her that's team. really cool. Yeah, it's a fun paper. I love that. Um, they're getting a lot of press about it, so um, go go check it out. It's very exciting. I love when hearing about like new cool animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you think you know it all, and then you hear something new, and it's like, what? I know. Yeah, and they have like th- they did a lot of. Like the papers, they've got a lot of things where they measured like the the temperature of the rats when they were exposing their like specialized cell, specialized hairs and when they're not. And it, they're like a lot warmer when they do it. There's a lot of like weird stuff. Oh, and there's so much information yeah. to still find out about these guys because they've been so yeah. um, elusive to, to scientists in the past. So, yeah, that's my shout out. Cool. Well, buy stickers, everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you're interested in sending stickers to somebody for the holidays, make sure to do it sooner while we still have the stickers and while I can guarantee that they'll get there in time. Uh, And thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning into this episode. I hope everybody had a good little break and is enjoying the holidays no matter where you are, no matter kind of what shape it's going to take this year. I know it's going to be a lot different for a lot of people, but... Um, yeah. maybe make some new traditions do something treat yourself as best you can yeah for sure make a lot of cookies make a lot of cookies pies. yeah this is get cozy <laughs> get cozy with the holidays uh, I also want to thank Caitlin Friesen for all the awesome art she's done um, that are on all the stickers and Artichoke for our yep. theme music and as always Go stimulate yourself. yourself. Okay, bye. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil.